Well, we will go ahead and uh, we are in Psalm, going to be Psalm 24 tonight. So I do have that handout for you guys. Um, I do want to share just a couple announcements real quick before we do that because I for, forgot to do that before. So uh, a couple things real quick. Just a reminder, uh, we do have the uh, prayer adoption uh, ministry, kind of a ministry. It's not really a ministry, I guess, in a sense. It's just a, an encouragement from someone in the church that approached me and said, hey, could we do something like this to just encourage people to be praying one for another, to be encouraging each other in prayer. And so that starts today. So you can sign up uh, today, a family uh, name can sign up. And then what will happen is when you sign up to pray for someone else, or I'm rather to be prayed for, you'll be praying for someone else. So I went out there this morning, it was so cool, or this evening, and I saw that there was a handful of names out there, um, which is awesome. And so what's going to happen is uh, those names will get kind of divided up. And so, for example, if Sandra and I signed up, then somebody on that list will be praying for us specifically, and then we'll get a name of a family we'll be praying for. So it's kind of just that simple of a ministry. So we'll leave it up for a couple of weeks. And then um, I didn't really get into it this morning too much, but basically we're going to run it. Probably have you do that, pray for that specific family. Uh, not that you can't pray for them after this until maybe after Christmas. And then beginning of January, we'll put the sign-up sheet out again, maybe get some more people involved in it. Um, and so again, it's really just a great way to pray for our family, church family, pray for one another. So hopefully you'll be able to be part of that. Uh, communion and Forever Young is coming up this Sunday. And so don't forget about that. And then Men's Chili Cook-Off and the Harvest Hayride are also right around the corner. Uh, Hallelujah Quilters have their quilting retreat that's going on uh, this coming weekend, Friday and Saturday. So be uh, thinking about that. If you have not signed up, you want to be a part of that or be praying for them. Um, they have an, a, a group that comes out every single Monday. And it's so cool to see even uh, ladies that don't attend our church uh, come out and just hang out for the day and just spend time together. Um, and one of the ladies more or less said um, that she likes coming because she doesn't feel pressured that she has to go to church here to come. Like nobody's tried to talk her into coming to church or convince her that our church is the best church or whatever. So she felt really welcomed by that. So I thought that was really neat. So, but be thinking about that. If you haven't signed up and you want to be a part of that, please do so. Um, and then a lot of other things going on as well. I mentioned it in my prayer. Uh, Mike and Fran, what a great blessing it was to have them with us. Uh, we got to go have lunch with them afterwards. And so it was just great to talk to them and encourage them. Um, and he said it again that they're really praying for uh, somebody from the Word of Life Bible Institute, one of the missionaries that are graduating to come to, to Michigan and be a missionary for the East Side. And so let's be praying for that, that God would send someone. Um, again, he even said it there. He said, I, I don't mind doing what we're doing, um, but it's getting to be a little bit uh, of a lot of a load. And so I, I didn't notice the map that he showed you this morning. Um, he didn't specifically say this, but he's covering all of that ground in the course of a school year. And so just within a few months, he's trying to hit all those churches. And that includes trying to get up to the UP one once a year. So be praying for, for Mike and Fran. Uh, many of you know uh, he battled with cancer here recently, and God brought healing through that. And so he has uh, recovered, and he's doing really, really well. But let's be praying for him and that as well, because that's a lot to put on your plate. So, uh, But let's do this. We're going to hand out Psalm 24. Then we'll give you guys time, as we normally have done, to go through that. Um, as I said a few weeks ago, I don't really have a plan as far as, okay, I'm going to do, you know, these set psalms and then we'll be done. I didn't have a timeline. Um, it's honestly week to week uh, as the Lord leads. And so, uh, but I was talking with Pastor Greg this week and we were kind of talking about some different things we could do on Sunday night. And so what, what we may end up doing is even if we move out of psalm, we may just take maybe other chapters from other 
popular passages, um, maybe smaller uh, epistles that we could do in a Sunday evening or a couple Sunday evenings um, and do something similar where you're getting an actual copy of it. You're able to make notations, things like that, but maybe not a psalm or only a psalm. So we'll see how that goes. But tonight we're going to be doing Psalm 24. So we'll hand these out to you guys. Just realized I was doing that with my tongue hanging out. Sometimes. There you go. Yep, there are clipboards up there as well. So if anybody needs a clipboard, would like a clipboard. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, there you go. Does TJ... Want one? Yeah, he needs one. Think about that. There you go, sir. He's a great helper. Does anyone need a pen? We have pens. Try that one. No, no, you're fine. There you go. Hopefully those work. Kelsey doesn't have her uh, bag of pens that she usually we usually dip into. So, what are we doing? Okay, hang on. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. So what we'll do is we'll give you guys uh, about ten minutes. I think is what we normally do. So we'll give you that ten minutes to go ahead and make some notations. Again, just a little bit of a Reminder of what we're doing. So you're looking for words or phrases that stand out to you. Maybe uh, things that are repeated through the psalm. um, Locations, names, anything like that that you would make a note of. Um, Maybe you're familiar with this psalm. So maybe you know when you get to a verse. Oh, I've I've read this verse before. I know what this verse is saying. So you'll make notations maybe a little bit different than someone else. But it's really just a chance to kind of make some observations about the text. And then we'll discuss it in just a little bit.
Well, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll read through the psalm together. Uh, Rather, I'll read it and then you can kind of follow along and then uh, we'll start diving in to see what the Lord has for us. And so Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing of the Lord, or I'm sorry, from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory, Selah. So right off the bat, we have to note, and I don't know if it's by accident, I don't think it would be by accident, what famous psalm precedes this psalm? No, not song, psalm. I'm sorry. We're going to get to that in a second. But yeah, she's third day. I, I like it. It's, I'm right there with you. Yes, yes. There's actually a couple praise songs that came out of this psalm, right? There's a couple that I thought of. But what famous psalm came before this psalm? 23, okay? That's probably the most famous psalm of all time, right? That, that idea of him being our shepherd, right? We have no wants because he fulfills our needs and we lie down in green pastures and so on. But I believe that when we understand Psalm 24, it makes Psalm 23 even more powerful. That when we understand this Psalm, and I could have went to Psalm 23 and we would have all been very familiar with that. But I wanted to go to this psalm because as I was reading through the different psalms, this one struck me in its relation with Psalm 23. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, when David sat down to write these, that he wrote 24 and thought of what this and this and put it all together. I don't know that. But I do believe God orchestrates this together for our good and for his glory. And so here we see this psalm follows the most famous psalm that we know of. And I truly believe that understanding Psalm 24 will help us in understanding and applying Psalm 23. So again, I already kind of alluded to it. David is believed to be the author of this psalm. And it is quite possible that uh, Psalm 24 was written. There's two ideas as to when it was written. Okay, two basic ideas. Uh, One was to commemorate the entrance of the ark into Jerusalem during David's time. So the commemoration of bringing the ark into Jerusalem during David's time. I'll give you a reference for that. It's 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 17, if you want to jot that down. 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 17. Or the other opinion is that it was uh, the ark being brought into the temple during Solomon's time. 2 Chronicles 5, 7 would be the reference for that. So it's either during David's time when the ark was brought to Jerusalem, into the city of Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 17. Or the other idea is when the ark of the covenant was brought into the temple uh, under Solomon's time. 2 Chronicles 
five seven. Now there is something kind of unique about this psalm, and it's not so much unique that it was sung in the temple or in worship, but I like the way that it went about in the singing. So I'm going to read uh, just real quick from Warren Worsby's commentary on this passage, on this psalm. And I like the way he kind of explained this, uh, how it was used in worship. So as you're looking at this psalm, you read through it, you're going to kind of see how this plays to what he's going to talk about here. He says this, The people, or a Levitical chorus, open with verses 1 through 2. So the people, or a chorus, right, of the Levites, would open with verses 1 through 2. A leader asks the questions in verses 3, 8, the beginning part of verse 8, and the beginning part of verse 10. So if you can note that off to the side, maybe on the left-hand side in the margin, the chorus would open with verses 1 through 2. A leader would then ask the questions in 3, verse 3, verse 8, the first part, and verse 10, the first part. And the chorus or the people would answer with verses 4 through 6, second part of verse 8, or the second part of verse 10. So there would be a, a response to this psalm. So they would, the leader would ask those questions in those verses, and then the people would respond in answer form. And this was done in worship. It was sung in Herod's temple each Sunday, and some connect this psalm with our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. For years, the church has assigned this psalm to be read on Ascension Day, the 14th day after Easter. So again, it's this idea of going back to this idea of worshiping through this psalm in connection with Christ. So again, it's kind of interesting that every Sunday in Herod's temple, they would sing this psalm in this responsive way as an act of worship. Now, we understand as New Testament Christians, we're going to connect a lot between the psalm and the New Testament, between what happens in the Old Testament, what it most likely was speaking to in its actual context, and how we're going to see it referring to the person and work of Christ. And so we're going to keep making that connection throughout the psalm. But interesting to note those things about that, how it was used in worship and when it was used in worship. Also, this psalm is a wonderful example of the poetic form and flow found in the book of Psalms. Uh, as we read through many psalms, you see this kind of poetic flow or this musical tone to it. And was already alluded to. Um, I also thought of a couple praise songs like King of Glory from Third Day, which is a great song. Um, but there was also, I, I don't remember the, the, how it goes and I won't sing it because you don't want that. I'm quite sure of that. Um, but there was a worship song we used to sing, and it was a chorus that basically referred to verse 6, that, that let this be the generation that seeks your face, that, that this generation would be the generation that seeks your face, O God of Jacob. And that song was based on this psalm. And I, as I was writing and making notes of this, I was thinking, man, isn't it amazing that, yes, they use this in the temple— Christians use it to recognize the ascension of Christ when he ascended from this world into glory. But even so, there's so much praise in this one psalm that songwriters today still go back to these psalms for inspiration and for direction and how to best write praise to the Lord. So let's dive in here to the first couple of verses. So if you had to give a title to this, I just kind of jotted down. It's a psalm declaring the greatness of our Lord. A psalm declaring the greatness of our Lord. 
So let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. So the first thing we read in this psalm is a statement of clear fact. What is the clear fact? What's that first line drive home to us, those first few words? The earth is the Lord's. So I hope, I hope you underline something in that. The earth, the planet, this planet is the Lord's. Again, it's a statement of fact. It's not trying to explain it. It's just stating it. Right? It doesn't say the earth is the Lord's. And if you don't believe that, let me now prove it to you. Just a statement of fact. The earth is the Lord's. That's just the reality of Scripture. We see Genesis start this way. In the beginning, God. God doesn't feel the need to defend himself. He just is. He, is, he exists. And he states that as fact. The earth among all the heavenly bodies is the sphere of chosen activity by God. Uh, Clarence Benson called the earth the theater of the universe because this is where Christ came to die on the cross. This is where Christ was buried in a broad tomb. This is where Christ rose again. This, the planet earth, among all of God's creation, and we now know even more and more, right? The more we study, the more telescopes we have, the more ability we have to see things in space, we know there are countless stars and galaxies and the vastness of the universe. And the earth is where God has chosen to act. The earth is where God has chosen to create humanity and to his son to come and die on the cross for our sins. And so again, that's kind of what Clarence Benson was talking about, that the earth is the theater of the universe. Another word you want to note there, obviously with that statement of fact, the next word we come to that might not you know, fit with what you would think it means is the word fullness, the fullness thereof. And so fullness there literally means entire contents. So you can jot that down there, entire contents. Everything on planet earth, everything in planet earth, everything that God created belongs to him. So literally everything contained within the world belongs to the Lord. That includes they that dwell therein. All of humanity is under his authority. Now we talked about this last week. I believe it was last week. We talked about that. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Was that last week? I believe so. So we talked about that last week, that there are people among humanity, people on planet earth that deny this very fact. The psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the entire contents and they that dwell therein. Humanity belongs to God. Even though there are fools on planet earth that deny that reality, the reality doesn't cease to exist. God does not cease to have control and authority over planet earth because some of the fools on planet earth say, no, I don't believe that. I reject that. The reality is it continues to be the same. It is re it's reality. It's truth. And God states it as fact. So again, pause for a moment and think about that st simple statement. That everything on this planet, everything that has ever been on this planet, is, is under his authority. It's his. Now that's hard for us to understand for what reason. Why would it be hard for us? Well, it's probably many reasons, but... But why do you think people struggle with that, that statement? 
that everything that has been and is on planet Earth is under his authority. It's under his control. What do you think one of the biggest, I'll use the word issues, I don't want to say objections, but issues to that statement would be among just humanity, not just believers or non-believers, you know, just among humanity. What do you think an objection or an issue with that would be? Yeah, yeah. When people look at suffering or disease or sickness or wars or people taking advantage of other people, they go, wait a minute, but if this is all yours, then how can you be over this if this isn't good? Now, we know the, the answer to that is simple. Fallen world, right? And all the things we just talked about are examples of sin. When sin was released into the world, humanity now instead of being in unison one with another, working to manage and care for the creation that God has given us, we are now in constant fights, constant battles to control. We want to control. We want to take the control out of God's hands and put it in our hands, and we want to take it out of other people's hands and put it in our hands. So we go to war. We go to battle. What does James say? You want, but you don't have, so you fight. Right? That's a real simple paraphrase. I want it. You have it. I'm just going to take it. And if you don't give it up, then we'll just go to battle over this. And if you really study history, human history, so much conflict, battles, war, violence, really boils down to, I want, you have, I'm taking it. Right? I mean, really, if we're being honest, land, power, money, it's all based in, I want, you have, I'm taking it. So really, people go, well, God, but this is under your control. And God is over it, and God is involved in it. And by the way, God is even glorified in it. And that's the part that, I'll be honest, I have a hard time, and I'm not saying I'll ever understand it, but I have a hard time with that. God, how could you possibly? And then I go to Scripture, and I read those passages that remind me that when God works in a situation, that he brings about his glory. Never once does God condone sin, and never once does God make someone sin. James says that. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So God is not making people sin so that then he'll be glorified. God is able to use these situations and bring about his glory. And yet humanity is 100% responsible for the sin that we commit. So God is both gracious to use things for his glory and our blessing and just to hold us responsible. And so here we see the Bible is not contradicting itself. Everything on planet earth is under his authority. Everything is under his control. That means everything that takes place, he is using, has used, and will use for his glory, for his purpose. The reason all of creation is under his authority is quite simple. He created it. He created it. He founded it, according to verse 2, he founded it upon the seas. He founded it, or he laid the foundation. He laid the foundation of creation on the waters. And we can read that when we go back to Genesis 1 and 2. That's what the Bible tells us. There's another word there, and I'm just curious if anybody noted it. You see the word founded. Did anybody kind of circle, underline, or, or make a note around the word established? Anybody do that? What, what, do you, what do you think when you read that verse? For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters, or upon the floods, I'm sorry. Why do you think the psalmist uses founded and then uses the word established? Like what came to your mind as you were reading the text? What came to your mind as you were making notes? If you circled it, 
Did you just find it kind of redundant? Okay, it's just saying basically the same thing, so he's kind of re- reiterating the same point. Or did you think there was a different emphasis? Like, what came to your mind when you read those words founded? We know that means to lay the foundation of, right, the groundwork. But then we have this word established. What comes to your mind? Okay, starting from nothing. I like that, absolutely. Renee? Like functioning? Okay, yeah, I like that. When you were just saying that, the first thing, when you said town, I didn't think of a town when I was making my notes, but I thought about like identity. Like there's the founding, okay, this is going to be this city, but then as it grows, it gains its own identity, its own uh, knowledge of, we're aware of it now, right? What else came to mind when you think about that? The idea of founding means to lay the foundations of and then established. Any other thoughts on that? So when I, when I kind of looked this word up, because I noted it as well, and I thought, okay, what is, what's being talked about here? Uh, the idea, when you look up the actual original language, it means to arrange in order. To arrange in order. So again, it's... it's taking something that was nothing and founding, laying the foundation of this creation, and then we're establishing it. Now, and I like that, that idea of it's, it's functioning, it's working, right? It's productive, it's fruitful, okay? But here we even understand it's not just fruitful and productive, it has an order. There's a distinct nature to it. And when you study anything to do with space and stars and planets and astrology and all of this, you're going to realize that that there is such an order to everything that we see, all the stars. I, I can't remember the, the numbers and the spacing and all that, but I remember when I was in school and I, we were learning about the, the, the planet Earth and, and how it's just far enough away from the sun, but not too far away from the sun. Like if it was any closer, it'd be too hot. If it was farther away, it'd freeze up. Like, like that to me, I remember sitting in whatever science class it was, and when I, when I heard that, being a follower of Christ, I instantly was like, yeah, that, that makes sense. It would make no sense if the planet couldn't sustain life on certain parts of it because of a mess up in, you know, how it hangs in space. But the fact that it literally sits exactly where it needs to sit to sustain life. And not just sustain life, like some life form, but productive life, right? Higher level life forms can, can live and function here. Now, I've always thought it's amazing that when you hear about, you know, they look at other planets and they'll say, oh, there's life. We believe there's life on this planet because there was at one time water, we think, or there was this or there was that. I'm always amazed how far scientists will go to say that's life on another planet. But when it's something in the womb, we go out of our way to deny that it's life. I've always been amazed by that. Well, there's this little tiny particle of what, that, that's life. That's evidence of life. What about this child in the womb? Oh, we don't really know. That's a personal choice. It's amazing how, again, that which is good is evil, and that which is evil we call good, and we flip it all around. But here we see the order that's established. All of creation reveals of God of detail and a God of purpose. Everywhere you look in creation, there's purpose and detail. 
Anyone that gardens, anyone that farms, anyone that plants something in the ground and a couple months later picks something off of that thing you planted and eats it, that's a God of order. Go ahead, yeah. Sort of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. I, one of the things that I always find amazing is I, over the years you find a bird's nest. And I found them, you know, whether it be on a, a downspout or something, you know, abandoned or whatever. And, and you'll take them down to just, you know, get rid of them or whatever because they're falling apart. I'm always amazed at the perfect circle that these birds make with sticks and mud. But they make this perfect little nest. And I know, well, it's just, you know, scientists tell you it's evolution, it's this, it's that, it's this. I, I'm sorry, that I, I don't know that I could make with just mud and sticks as good a circle as these birds make. So why is that? Because God has formed them and they are able to do this because God has given them that knowledge. He's, he's a God of order, a God of detail. And when you see creation, there's one purpose, one key purpose, I should say, to creation. It's to make us pause and think, our God is amazing. Like everything directs to the glory of God. It doesn't matter what part of creation you're talking about. We can be in all of the beauty, all of the wonder, all of the creation, the animals, and all of that. But it's all intended while we're, you know, kind of thinking, man, it's a beautiful sunset or it's a beautiful this. It's meant to, yes, cause us to pause and, and appreciate the beauty of something. But it's meant really to draw us as creation of God to him to acknowledge he as creator, him as creator. And so again, it's just this beautiful thing that the psalmist is saying. When you step back and you see creation, you realize there is order here. It's not just chaos. It's not just madness or, you know, chance, you know, mutations that create this or that. So it's meant to give us that direction towards him. Uh, Moving through verse 3. Uh, We did not read that one. Let's read verse 3 again. Uh, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Who shall stand in his holy place? So here we read in verse 3 a question of who can ascend the hill of the Lord or stand in his holy place. So a couple notes here. If David is writing... Again, we said there was two options, right? One is David writing when the ark comes into Jerusalem. One could be during Solomon's time. If David is writing, which most believe, uh, there is no temple yet, right? Solomon is going to do that. David is not going to be able to build the temple. He's going to get all the materials together. He's going to get all the supplies together. And God is going to allow Solomon to be the one that builds the temple. So if David is writing here and there's no temple yet, then what could David be talking about when he says the hill of the Lord. Well, a couple opinions, a couple ideas. Remember, Zion, right, originally was what? What's the original first Zion that we talked about? Just say? It, it's a hill, yeah. It was actually, what's that? It becomes, like Jerusalem becomes called the city of Zion. We know the Temple Mount becomes 
called the Holy Mount, right? That's Zion. It was actually a fortress. Remember, it was a fortress just outside of Jerusalem that was held by the Jebusites. When the Jebusites controlled that, David conquered that, took over the city. And when he did, he kept the name Zion for that hill. But then it became known as more the city of Jerusalem, the temple. And then ultimately the people of God, the Israelites, became known as the people of Zion. And so again, some have suggested he's just referring to Zion. Just referring to this idea of the, the God's hill, God's glory. But others have suggested that God revealed to David where the temple mount would be. And so because David had a knowledge of where the temple was going to be, he's asking this question in a sense prophetically, like talking about what's going to be the temple, the holy hill. So however you want to look at it, the key is David is making a a statement about that there's a holiness of God and not everyone can just go in his presence. That that's really the key idea here. However he's defining it in whatever specific area, he's talking about this idea of the hill of the Lord and the holy place. Now we know the temple will have the holy of holies, which is inside the temple, which was restricted. Only the high priest could go in there, right? And only at certain times and ultimately for certain reasons and prayerfully uh, he would go in or with the right intentions and, and motivations and God would receive the sacrifice. But here we see David's idea is basically this. There's a holiness to God and not anyone can just walk right in. So this could also be referring to the Levites carrying the ark that had to be ceremonial clean. So let's look at verse 4. So we see here in verse 3, ask the question, verse 4 is the answer. He that, hath, or he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. So what do we think of with clean hands? When the Bible talks about clean hands, what's it referring to? It's not literally meaning like wash your hands, right? When the Bible says have clean hands, what is the Bible talking about? Okay. Okay. So it's talking, yeah, the idea of sin definitely, right? Clean hands deals with our actions. Right? Our conduct, our behavior. Because then he goes on to say, and a pure heart. So when the Bible talks about clean hands and a pure heart, James talks about this. Right? Cleanse your hand, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Right? Hands usually refers to actions or conduct. Heart obviously refers to what? Motives, emotions. Like, like why I'm doing this. What's my, what's my drive? What's my desire in this? And so again, we talk about There's a question and an answer. So this is why some think, well, in context, he was referring to the Levites that would be carrying the ark, needing to be ceremonially clean, uh, which again may have been the emphasis in verse 4. Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, these Levites have to carry the ark in a right way, right? Under all the guidelines that were laid out in the the books of the law. So it could be referring to that. But I do believe there's a greater context here. A greater connection. And we mentioned this a little bit ago. I do believe there's definitely hints of or things that directly point to the Messiah. Point to the coming Christ. So again, the question is what? Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Verse 4 is the answer. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. 
So the truest answer to the question of verse 3 that we find in verse 4, the only one that can say they definitively have done that without fail is Christ. Christ is the only one that has always been pure. Christ is the only one that can stand in the holy place without any covering for sin. Remember when the high priest went in to offer a sacrifice for sin on the Day of Atonement? Whose sin was also being atoned for? His own sin. Right? That high priest was not perfect. He didn't come in sinless. He needed his sin forgiven just as much as the nation of Israel needed their sin forgiven. So this is speaking directly, I believe, to the person and work of Christ. Again, he is the only one that has never done anything in deceit or vanity. And no human being can say the same thing. No human being can perfectly say, I've done verse 4, without fault, without fail. And so this is, again, yes, in context, if it's referring to the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem, coming into the Mount Zion, or maybe potentially during Solomon's time coming into the Temple Mounts, it could literally be referring to the Levites and they needed to be cleansed ceremonially and have clean hands and a pure heart and the right focus and all that they do. But I definitely see a connection here to, as we're going to see at the end of the psalm, a connection to Jesus Christ. The high priest, again, was only allowed to enter the Holy Holies for what reason? Why did God receive that priest's sacrifice on the Day of Atonement? Why was he allowed to come into the Holy of Holies? Because of his righteousness? No. Because Christ was going to come and die for the sins of the world? All of those Old Testament saints, all those high priests that came and offered a sacrifice, that was accepted only because Christ was going to come. Nothing they did brought righteousness upon themselves, removing sin. In fact, John even says, and the Bible talks about this, that the Old Testament, was ne- their sins were never removed. Their sins were just covered. But John says the Lamb of God removes the sins of the world. And so here we see again, even the high priests that went in were not perfect, but God extended grace to them because of what Christ was going to do. It was not their own righteousness, but the grace of God extended to him through the covenants, which was only possible because of what Christ would accomplish on the cross. Uh, just an idea, more phrasing here about this. Jesus is the one with clean hands and a pure heart who can ascend the mountain of the Lord. Jesus will receive blessing from the Lord, and we're going to see that in verse 5. So we see this idea that who is it that can really ascend the mount? Who is it that can really walk into God's presence and not need a sin covering? It's Christ. So now we fast forward to us as followers of Christ. Because we know Christ, because we, our sins have been forgiven, because we now have this relationship with God, what can we now do freely? Yeah. Hebrews chapter 4, right? Come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy at the proper time. Not because of what we've done. Our hands are not cleansed because we cleansed our hands. Now, James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you're double-minded. But what he's referring to there is the idea that, one, we need Christ to cleanse our hands and purify our minds. But two, as a practical application of the gospel, we need to daily confess sin. We need to daily ask God to forgive us for the wrong heart, the wrong motives, the wrong actions. And again, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah. 
have to pull his dead body out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which I don't know if I'd want to be on deck for that. Like, he went down. You're on. Now? I'm on now? Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that Psalms like this help us to remember in the Psalm we looked at last week too, that, that if we don't realize how insignificant, not insignificant, impossible it is for us to enter his presence on our own. If we don't realize the weight of sin that we care and that we bear and that without Christ, we could never enter his presence. I think when we hear things like, well, now the temple's been, or the curtain's been ripped, now you have access to the throne. There are even some believers that think, well, yeah, but I wasn't that bad to begin with. I mean, it's not like I was one of them. And and we almost start assuming that we kind of had access all along. I've met unbelievers that, you know, try to share the gospel with them and they'll say, well, I pray all the time. I I have a relationship with God. I go to God all the time. And they're not realizing that they cannot ascend his holy mountain. They cannot access his presence because he is holy and they are not. And so again, we have to understand who we really are. Stop. Let me just look ahead there a little bit. We might just pause right here. Yeah, we will because I don't want to speed through this. Um, any other, just through verses one through four, any other notes or things that jump out to you? in verses one through four, maybe that I didn't touch on just yet. Something else that maybe spoke to you or encouraged you in some way um, so that maybe we can share that and then we'll pray in just a moment. No? I couldn't have covered all of it. There's no way. Maybe I did. All right. Well, here's what I want you guys to do. Since now it's a little bit different, you have the opportunity before you hear the rest of the, of the talk on this psalm, uh, go do more studies. Like, go home and, and get into your study Bible, and maybe if you have a commentary, get into that, and just start looking at this psalm and start making more notations and more notes. And again, I, I pray that this is just a reminder of why I started doing this, why I wanted to do this with us as a church, um, is because I think we sometimes overlook some of the passages that we read because we just speed through them. We just read to read. And if you can stop and pause and, and just take a moment, I truly believe that it'll help us to worship in a, in a truer sense. Um, and, and I, you know, just for me personally, it's amazing how I prepared for this Psalm, read over this. And I talk about how, um, you know, Psalm 24 gives life to Psalm 23 and that we understand you know, who, who God is here, the, the world is his, and yet I still allow myself to get discouraged and frustrated, right? I still allow myself to get my mind off the Lord. I start focusing on situations or where expectations aren't met, and the next thing you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, pity party. But if, and this is someone, I spent hours studying this passage. I mean, just writing notes and doing all this, and yet, the moment something didn't go the way I was hoping, it was like, Lord, where'd you go? I just instantly started to, to like let my faith fall. And so we have to be so careful that when we do this, it's not just to read a passage and, oh, that's kind of interesting. What did Mike say this morning? It's not about just gaining knowledge of God's word. It's about applying God's word, right? Practically seeing it lived out. And we do that over time. So, so here's the, the confession time. I'm not as mature as I want to be in the Lord, but I'm praying that I'll get there 
a little more today and a little more tomorrow and a little more the next day. And how do we do that? We do things like digest God's word to become more and more like Christ so that we, it, we're never going to arrive. We're never going to reach a point where we just look back and go, oh, all these foolish babies in Christ and these children in Christ, they, don't, they just don't understand like I do. I'm not pointing at you guys. I was just saying like over here imaginally. I was like literally pointing at the youngest ones in the room. That was not intentional. Um, but we look, well, I guess kind of so. But um, we look back on people and we tend to think, well, one day they'll figure it out like I did. No, 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 it's not about that. It's about every day desiring to grow a little more and a little more and a little more like Christ so that we're, we're maturing. I've never met a believer that's done growing. And usually when a, mature, a believer says, oh, I'm done, I've matured, I'm done growing, they're actually just showing how much they've regressed, right? They're how far back they've gone. Because we can never get to a point where God's word should be anything other than exciting, invigorating, right, challenging. I mean, when you read that first verse, when you read that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. And then we get to come to worship on Sundays and Wednesdays and every day of the week that you're in your private devotional life or prayer time, you get to worship that God. Like the God that owns everything. That's your father. That's your savior. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I read that verse and I just keep reading it. And I just keep going on to the next one, the next one. And I forget, pause and praise and reflect that this is our God. Like, and we get to worship him. I get to go to his holy of holies. I get to come into his presence, not because of me, because of Christ. I get to lay my request at his feet. He hears and then responds to those requests. Like he actually acts in ways to bless me and to provide for me. And so again, I just want to encourage you guys that, as recent as an hour ago, I, I was not applying this psalm. And I'm so thankful for God's grace that when we have those moments, we can just as quickly say, Lord, I'm giving this back to you. I'm sorry for taking it out of your hands. Give me wisdom and guidance and help me to grow. And it's just that easy where we now begin to see God strengthen us again and renew our thinking, renew our minds, and we have that right attitude, the right heart. So again, just an encouragement to you guys to stay in God's word this week. If it helps you print off passages, Maybe a couple times a week, do this on your own. If there's a passage that you feel led to, to study or to pray over, or to read over, print multiple pages and just do this. It's not meant to be hard to study God's word as followers of Christ, but it does take work to study God's word. All right, well, let's pray and then we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this evening. And Lord, I do thank you for your grace your mercy. I thank you that through Christ we are able to have access into the Holy of Holies. That we don't come in our own strength and our own merit and our own power, but we come in the person and work of Jesus Christ through the finished work of the cross. That you are the only one that can say definitively that you can ascend the holy mountain. That you can stand in the holy place of God because as the sinless lamb that you are to be praised. We read in Revelation that it's uh, all the saints are going to sing praises to the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb. And so I pray that you would help all of us, Lord, no matter our age, no matter where we are in our walk with Christ, no matter how long we've been saved, how much of the Bible we think we know or we do know, that every single one of us would aspire every single day
not to be perfect in every way, but to grow just a little more today than we did the day before. To just mature a little more in our thinking, a little more in our actions. And Father, I pray that as followers of Christ, while we understand that that we are cleansed and we are renewed in Christ, that the calling and the, the desire of the word of God, as it's shared with us, is that, as John says, that we would sin not, that we would strive to have clean hands, a pure heart, to not speak deceitfully, to not give ourselves to vanity, to live for empty things, but to live for you. And so thank you that that is our standing with you, that we are washed and cleansed and and purified through the blood of Christ, that Ephesians says that we will be presented as a spotless, a perfect bride, with no sin, no blemish. But I pray as we live in this world, in this flesh, that we would strive to apply that to our lives, that we would strive to live in agreement with our standing with you. So thank you for the growth that you give us. Thank you for the wisdom that you bestow upon us by the working of your spirit. And again, I pray that we would live this psalm out this week, that we would know no matter what we see in the world around us, no matter what we encounter in this world, that we would know this is yours, that you are over all of it. You have a purpose and a plan. You have a design. You're a God of order and a God of detail. And I pray that, that we would just worship you fuller and truer this week because of it. Father, again, give us a, a great rest of this night, a great week ahead, and bring us back on Wednesday when we worship you and we give you all the praise and all the glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.